Throughout this season, we really traveled through the lowest valleys and highest mountaintops of ecosystem building. My guests shared some of their hardest experiences of facing and trying to navigate conflict. We heard some pretty hairy tales about naysayers and saboteurs and how even seasoned ecosystem builders struggle to keep their cool and move their communities forward regardless. But then we also talked about the magic that is social capital and all the things we can get done almost effortlessly when people within the ecosystem trust each other and are willing to pursue opportunities that are best for entrepreneurs in their ecosystem. Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of changemakers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise changemaker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive, whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker, Learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. In episode 7 of season 4, Julie Heath showed us what social capital looks like in practice when she talked about their nonprofit co-working space that was thriving on the power of introductions to help entrepreneurs get unstuck. Introductions can leapfrog a lack of dollars for founders who don't have friends and family dollars and get them directly to what the dollars would buy. So for example, if you're a founder working in isolation and you need to hire an attorney uh, because you have a question about incorporation choices, it might cost you $500 an hour. You have to figure out who the attorneys are, uh, figure out which one's trustworthy. If you do have the money, you're going to have some anxiety or pressure at least because you you might not know what you don't know. And so um, that's in contrast to a center of community experience where you ask the community manager the same, I don't know what I don't know question. Maybe it's specifically, um, I'm pulling on a specific example. I have an LLC. I've learned that Benefit corporations are now a legal incorporation status here, but someone told me that my new business model and the crowdfunding campaign I want to do means I should ask an attorney about rethinking incorporation. And having the community manager walk the founder over to a couple of other founders who had just been there or somewhere similar and having a conversation for, for clarity purposes. And then maybe walking over to the attorney who helped enable benefit corporations to be recognized in our state. And saying to the attorney, "Do you? when would you have five minutes? And then doing that curated connection where it's not an imposition on the attorney because he's already opted in to be part of the community because he wants to pay it forward. But now that founder walks away from a five or 10 minute conversation unstuck and with progress and momentum and knowing he or she is going the right direction for the next day or week. That is so powerful. And it doesn't stop with advice, though that's a key resource for any entrepreneur. It applies to business connections, meeting potential new clients, finding the right investors, recruiting your next ideal hire, and so on. When it comes to building and growing companies, or any change-making initiative, information is key. And as we know, 
in a thriving ecosystem. Information flows freely from those who have it to those who need it. In other words, social capital is what enables that free flow of information, talent and resources. It's the currency, the medium that makes the whole become greater than the sum of its parts. Social capital might just be that secret sauce of building essential trust and managing conflict that inevitably arises as part of our work. In Season 4, we broke down how to build and leverage social capital to navigate conflict and transform your community for better. The Nature of Conflict in Ecosystem Building All right, friends. First things first, humans are messy. They have personalities and beliefs and experiences and perspectives, and all of which makes it a glorious, wonderful mess. Anything less would be kind of boring. In the words of Jess Edwards, humans are social creatures. Ecosystem building is about helping entrepreneurs, and it is all about people and collaborative work. If people are involved, there will be drama, there will be issues, and most importantly, there will be conflict. One of the things I learned this season is that ecosystem building is like a road trip. Both Jess and Margot Fliss use this analogy to showcase why conflict arises. Imagine you and the stakeholders in your ecosystem are headed to Florida. Before you set out, it looks like you're all on the same page of where to go. It's not until you're actually in the car, barreling down the highway, that you realize that everyone has a different idea of how to get there. What route are you taking? What pace are you traveling at? How often do you stop for breaks? What's your snack policy? And what radio station, or should I say podcast, are you listening to? Ecosystem building is not that different. The destination is clear. Supporting the change makers in your community. But everyone, I guarantee you, has a different idea of how to achieve it and a different take on what's important along the way. As it turns out, that's perfectly normal. In episode 5 of this season, Margot Fliss from Anchorage, Alaska talked about an ecosystem effort that went pretty sideways. In case you haven't listened to it yet, she talked about how she was convening stakeholders to share their ideas and plans for an emerging industry in Alaska. Everyone was pretty excited. People had taken time out of their week to attend, they traveled long distances and came prepared to help this new industry take root in their state. What happened was that with too many cooks in the kitchen and too little listening, the events somewhat imploded and left nothing but collaboration debris. Here's how Margot reasoned with what happened. You could plan your perfect trip. I could plan my perfect trip. We might be describing them in ways that sound like they're going to be really close and really you know, almost identical to each other. But they're vastly different because we're vastly different people. We have different experiences, different um, upbringings, different things we're excited about. And so if we don't learn how to communicate in a way that allows folks to ask questions and say, hmm, I'm actually a little confused by what you mean there. Can you please tell me more about that? Um, getting folks kind of running in the same direction is incredibly important. But... Uh, to be honest, there has not been a ton of growth in that group over the last couple of years. There's been really fun things and cool new projects and some great entrepreneurs popping up. But on the whole, in my opinion, things have stalled out in many ways. And that's really disappointing and really frustrating. 
Having worked in more than 50 communities around the United States, for Faye Horwood, conflict often comes down to fear and a scarcity mindset among ecosystem players. And a lot of conflicts, I find, have to do with fear. Most of them have at their root cause fear. And in this particular case, which is often the case, fear of uh, not getting funding or someone else getting funding. There's a scenario uh, in community that, that we worked in where there was, an, there was an opportunity to, you know, be funded to facilitate a set of work. And one, one entity organization raised their hand and said, I will do that. Now, before that, nobody was interested in doing that set of work. What emerged is then other organizations or entities looked and said, oh, we don't want them to do that set of work. The fear that that group would get something that they weren't getting. And whether it was for, for uh, the correct reasons or not, um, this fear drove, you know, now this sort of competitive landscape where it's like multiple people wanting to do the same set of work, Right. When this happens, which is, it happens all the time, you know, other instances are, um, you know, when, uh, when something is happening and people feel like they're the only organization left out or somebody gets credit for something uh, that multiple people worked on, <laughs> you know, there's, there's sort of this fear of either not getting funding, not getting recognition, not being seen, not having your voice heard. These are all very real human emotions and organizations also have emotions. I like, I like to think about organizations have their own life, right? And so they have their own history and perspective in an ecosystem where they've had experiences happen to them as an organization that cause harm and trauma, just like individuals have harm and trauma. And it again, creates fear. Given all these insights, it's hardly surprising that conflict arises in any collaboration-driven endeavor. I would even go as far as to say that if you don't have any conflict, you might not be building anything worthwhile. My conversation with Cecilia Wessinger in episode 4 gave me a whole new appreciation for the value of conflict. Listen to what she said. I want to take away the notion of going along to get along. Because it's not where innovation, the creativity, all of those things happen. All that growth happens outside of your comfort zone, right? But we have a tendency to quiet dissent. Because when we quiet dissent, then things go smoothly. But then things don't progress necessarily. We just keep rolling along and not getting anywhere. So that's a really challenging part when we talk about the fact that, you know, when you quiet the, the dissent, you think that the problem goes away, but problems don't go away. People go away. And so it's quiet. And then you're like, oh, yay, we can get going and do the thing. But the problems keep rearing its head because you haven't solved anything. You've just gotten rid of the people that were grumbling. Yeah. And you know what? Those people grumbled because they cared. So that's part of the thing that you want to remember. and. That doesn't make them right. It just means that they had skin in the game and it mattered to them. To rephrase, 
conflict is an indicator that you have diverse people at the table who care a great deal about the outcome of the journey you're about to embark on. If conflict is so natural in ecosystem building, how do we manage it? As a professional conflict avoider, this question was one of the most interesting ones for me this season. Personally, I like to avoid conflict as much as I can. To be honest, it's often to the detriment of my long-term outlook and well-being. So, I won't say this often, but don't be like me. Face conflict head-on. Here are a few steps on how to manage conflict. Number one, understand that conflict has deep roots. By the time we recognize an open conflict, it's probably been smoldering and building up for years. Sometimes it's people's interpersonal histories and grievances that were never aired. Other times it's a culmination of systemic tension that has built up over decades or even centuries and that you as an ecosystem builder work to uncover and help heal. It's one thing to be diverse and inclusive, but you also have to think about what is the history of the lack of inclusion and diversity? What is the damage that has created? for individuals and organizations, and how do you make up for that? How can you build and design things in a compensatory way and have leadership and decision-making this compensatory so that it makes up for those things? To hear more about this conversation, tune into my conversation with Faye Horwood in episode two. Even when we're not talking about systemic tension in particular, you'll often learn that what you're facing as an ecosystem builder is only the tip of the iceberg of a much larger and older issue at hand. That means you need to address it as such. Number two, have the hard conversation. Ideally one-on-one, ideally face-to-face. Do not put your hurt feelings and banged up ego in an email and do not write a blog post about it. More than anything, do not complain to others about a conflict you're facing until you've talked to the other party you're in conflict with. Faye and I are both avid writers and best process through the written word. When you write, however, there is no nuance. The other person reading your words cannot discern your tone nor your intention. Remember, they too are taking all this in through their own personal lens and perspective. They too filter everything through the experiences they've had, through their own insecurities and doubts and in light of how they have perceived you so far. Number three, the power of one-on-one. As a project-based ecosystem builder, Jess Edwards typically parachutes into communities and hits the ground running. The upside as well as the downside of that approach is that she is not usually aware of which players do not see eye to eye, who said their feelings hurt by whom, etc., etc. Her advice? Have one-on-one conversations with stakeholders who seem reluctant or who bring their preconceived notions to the table. See whether you can help resolve their conflict in order to move your efforts along. Margot shared a similar experience. In her case, she talked about building relationships early and bringing sore heads and naysayers on board. It's very hard to combat folks who um, they, in strategic doing, they call them sore heads. They've got a million reasons why they don't have hope anymore. They say, nope, that's not going to work. We've tried that, et cetera, et cetera. So what I often try to do when I approach projects is almost head that off and say, tell me about that. 
Why do you think it didn't work? What went wrong? What could we do differently? Really try to engage the folks that seem to have kind of lost their hope for that exciting new project or exciting new program and say, tell me about it. What happened? What could we do differently? And sometimes engaging those folks early on in the process can be really transformational and they can end up being some of your biggest advocates. One of the things that I've learned is to approach projects very differently. If you have naysayers, bring them in early and say, tell me about what experience made you feel that way or what happened. Maybe how did that make you feel? Were you frustrated? Were you upset? Was it, you know, professionally not a great experience for you? Tell me about that. Can we fix that? Can we change that? That's a lot of work. And it's, uh, as an ecosystem builder, it takes a lot of time and effort to build relationships with folks. Again, this is all happening before you start a project. So I think one of my biggest lessons is to build trust. It's a lot of groundwork and often bringing folks in and having uncomfortable conversations when they've lost hope in a project or lost hope in And they're saying, oh, no, 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 we've tried that before. It's not going to work. How do you combat that? Bring them in and and, and see what they have to say. And sometimes they're never going to go for a project. They don't want to work on it anymore. They, They don't believe in it. That's okay. But at least you attempted to bring them in and make them an active participant. Hey there. While we're chatting about all things ecosystem building, I wanted to invite you over to socialventurers.com, where you can find even more content and insights into what we're talking about. And if you want to be the first one to hear about new episodes, get some behind the scenes content, and you could use a heartfelt reminder that what you do matters, sign up for Impact Curator. Impact Curator is my curated love letter to our community that hits your inbox every two weeks. And now back to the show. Number four, you can't please everyone. In my early days as an ecosystem builder, I was hell bent on consensus building. I just like people to get along and I much prefer we all agree on how to move forward. And guess what? It got me stuck so many times. At some point, I just threw my hands up in the air and decided I couldn't wait for everyone to like me and like my approach. I realized that while this was super important to me, It was nowhere near the top of other people's priority list. So instead, I decided to just keep my head down and move forward with the people who were as excited and committed as I was, while keeping the door open for some of the stragglers in case they changed their mind. Yeah, all this felt like a rebellion. I had finally gotten myself unstuck, and it turned out that the naysayers didn't care nearly as much as I did. And there was enough space for all of us to test out our approaches and move our community forward, even if we didn't all agree on how to execute. In episode six, Todd Knuckles shared how he handles a stalemate. You have to let people be willing to, in conflict, choose their path. And you can't hold bitterness and resentment towards that. Uh, Just go produce and do what you can do. Keep your vision simple and continue to keep open arms Uh, with all that are involved because you never know what's going to happen and ultimately they became great partners and advocates even though we had had a conversation where literally it was you should not do what you're doing straight out of the gate and um, that was definitely an interesting moment to sit in a room and hear that but uh, you can't be discouraged 
uh, and you have to continue to build a framework where people can collaborate uh, regardless of their particular differences in terms of their approach or execution. In brief, if there are tension and conflict in your ecosystem, do your best to address them head on. Don't shy away from difficult conversations and please, please, please have them one-on-one -on -one and ideally face-to-face. -face. Listen actively, try to find the root cause of this conflict and offer to help resolve it. But don't be held hostage or assume you absolutely have to have every single player on board before you move on. There will very likely always be those who don't want to be part of your thing, who will never agree with your approach or who simply have different priorities. Don't let it stall your work. You can't undo history and you can't make people collaborate who absolutely refuse to work together. Try this instead. Refocus everyone on the mission and put the needs of the entrepreneurs at the center of your efforts. If you do this part well and with sincerity, you can't be far off. Number five, don't be a martyr. In episode four, Cecilia Wessinger talked about the darker sides of managing conflict and finding yourself at the front line when no one else wants to take on this thankless task. Jess Edwards, too, warned us of playing the martyr. And if you've listened to previous seasons, you've heard me say this many times. There is a fine line between serving our communities and being a martyr. Your job as an ecosystem builder is not to help other so-called grown-ups work through their issues. You are not a therapist. And if you ask me, stepping into conflict resolution within an ecosystem is not only hard, but it takes a lot out of us. I confided in Margot that ever since the pandemic, I have a lot less energy to build new relationships and just put myself out there again and again. I fear that I have somehow become a little less socially adept. And Margot responded with her approach. She said, I'll put myself out there first. That's exhausting and it's scary. And you have to be willing to be vulnerable and say, well, that didn't go the way I thought it would, but I put myself out there and I tried. A big part of it is being vulnerable to build relationships with folks. And that takes time and energy. And honestly, in today's world, time and energy seem to be in short supply for many folks. With all this being said, I started to wonder, is there anything we can do to prevent conflict arising in the first place? Can we prevent the waters from getting so murky and choppy? Can we set ourselves and the ecosystem up for success before things get tough? The answer is yes. We can at least set expectations early on and communicate them clearly. As Jess Edwards explained in episode three, it's easy to get everyone excited about cross-sector collaboration, innovation, and ecosystem building in the beginning. At first, it's sexy, it's new, it hasn't been done before, and hopes are sky high. Nobody knows yet that this is going to take twice as long, cost three times as much, and that the results will look very different from what everyone expects in the now. During this initial excited phase, when everyone wants a piece of what you're doing, do yourself a favor and find out why they want to be involved, beyond the obvious claim to fame. Find out which stakeholder in the ecosystem is truly committed, what they hope to achieve and what an ideal outcome would look like to them. This is an excellent time for each player to ask themselves, what's in it for me? Because once the going gets tough, and it will, this is what they'll fall back on. 
if the people you're convening and working with have skin in the game, you need to know and ideally write down what their value proposition is. Because first off, transparency around what any given party is hoping to achieve sets very clear expectations among all stakeholders. And secondly, you'll have to remind them of said value proposition once the shine comes off ecosystem building. On a more practical note, here's how Margot thinks about expectation setting based on her previous experience where the wheels came off. I would have changed the parameters and done more pre-work to make sure that everybody was on the same page and how they define what success would look like. And then I think the second thing that I would have done was really tell folks, you know, as the organizer, as a facilitator, here's what I'm going to be doing. Here's the expectations for me. Here's the expectations for you as a participant. And make that really clear to folks. I think that there was some miscommunication where some folks thought, oh, um, here's what we're going to be doing. And, and again, miscommunication, it, it can be so detrimental. And people think, oh, we just were a little bit not on the same page. However, that can be incredibly detrimental to the success of an event or, you know, an organization or a program kind of moving forward. So there has to be a big emphasis on the pre-planning and the building of trust. Also, in hindsight, I trusted that some folks would do what they said they were going to do and, and, and show up and um, kind of fulfill their end of the bargain. And I felt foolish. And, you know, again, when I thought they said they were going to do this and they did not do that at all. And I was really upset. So uh, I think what I would have done was more working with them uh, beforehand to ensure that we were, um, there was a level of, I keep using the word trust, but when you've worked with folks and you understand where they're coming from and, and why they're doing what they're doing, you start to have empathy for them. Okay, I understand why they're doing this and, and you start to build a rapport. That's really critical in building trust and having successful events, in my opinion. How to actually build trust. In the eShip Playbook version 3.0, the definition of entrepreneurial ecosystems, which is the definition I use to guide my work, is as follows. The essence of an entrepreneurial ecosystem is its people and the culture of trust and collaboration that allows them to interact successfully. What we hardly ever talk about, but have taken for granted, is the idea of building trust. Season 4 allowed us to dive a lot deeper into the idea of trust and what it takes to build it within complex adaptive systems. To me, managing conflict and building trust are two sides of the same coin, the whole of which is social capital greater than the sum of its parts. I asked each guest how they build trust, and here's what I learned. Number one, do what you said you were going to do. This sounds simple because technically it is simple, but at the same time, this is a clear instance in which we separate the wheat from chaff. Whether or not you do the thing you committed to will decide whether or not people trust you. And we're not talking about huge efforts here, friends. We're talking about the small stuff. Hand on heart, how often have you had a coffee meeting and thrown in, oh yeah, I can introduce you to that person, or I'll send you that report when I get back in front of my computer, or sure, I'll share that link with you. And then you didn't? 
because it seemed easy in the moment, but too much effort after the instance? Because other stuff got in the way? Because life got busy? If you want to earn people's trust, do the thing anyway. Realistically, and you know this, it will only take a few minutes. For you, it's an easy scroll or search, whereas the person who you made that commitment to may have no way of getting access to what is so simple for you. Just bloody do it. If you find yourself in situations repeatedly where you're not following up on your commitments, ask yourself why that is. I've been guilty in the past of getting really excited in the moment and then, once the enthusiasm wears off, not following through. Because my to-do list got the better of me. Once I observed that behavior, I stopped making so many promises. I am now able to catch myself at that moment and I'm a better judge of what I can offer and realistically deliver on. Number two, work on small projects. As with small commitments, you can also pick small projects to work on together before you try to go after these big, hairy, audacious goals in your ecosystem. Some of the people I have learned to trust the most in my career are the ones who pulled me into a project they were passionate about and we got to work together. Rather than talking things over and over, rolling up your sleeves together shows you whether or not you can rely on each other and whether you can build something cooperatively. One of the steps in strategic doing revolves around picking small, manageable, and realistic projects that can be achieved within 30 days. They have to be realistic to avoid the excuse of being overwhelmed and overworked. Working on small projects together shows you what cloth the other players are cut from. Based on this commitment and delivery, we decide whether or not we trust others. Number three, become credible. In episode three, Jess Edwards explained trust building in terms of credibility and shared the three ways in which you build up your credibility. Number one, be respectful yet fearless. In other words, say what needs to be said, even if it's not a popular opinion. As long as you build that opinion based on what's best for the entrepreneurs or changemakers you're serving in the community, you need to voice that opinion with sincerity and conviction. Be respectful Ground your views on what's best for the ecosystem and don't sugarcoat it. Number two, be results-oriented. Nothing beats results. Similarly to what Julie Heath argued in episode seven, know your metrics and facts. If you need to, walk around with your folder of statistics and graphs to show what you're all about and where you're headed. Not only does it show that you've done your homework and understand the issues at hand intimately, it's simply hard to argue with data and results. Having the data to back up your actions and decisions makes you more trustworthy than someone who throws ideas at a wall to see what sticks. And number three, be an active listener. Sit down and listen. As Faye pointed out, as ecosystem builders, we need to listen more than we speak. In episode two, Faye shared the example of starting an ecosystem project in Baltimore. The community Forward Cities was engaging with had been surveyed to death without ever seeing or enjoying the fruits of that research. By the time Faye and her team came around, constituents were understandably apprehensive of Forward Cities. Instead of jogging through her prepared presentation, she turned the projector off to sit down and listen to the community's previous experiences, to their fears and mistrust, to their concerns and wishes for their community. 
Madeleine Martinier talked at length about the importance of participatory design in season two. And Margot, too, explained in great detail how she lays the foundation for any collaboration early on by seeking out conversations with critics, so-called soreheads. Listening is not just a tool to win over naysayers, by the way. It is generally a good practice when you try to develop trusting relationships. It signals that you value the person opposite at least as much as the effort you're working towards. Number five, show up, celebrate, and support. In season one, we talked to Charlton Cunningham about how you build trust in an ecosystem, and his resounding advice was, show up wherever and whenever you can, within reason, to listen and become actively involved in your ecosystem. Attend events, become part of the conversation, find out what's needed and offer to help where you're qualified. Margot Fliss echoed this sentiment. You put in the time. When they invite you to events, you know, within reason, uh, you go, you support them. You are there showing up not to, to, you know, get a participation trophy, but to support them. I feel that one of the best ways to really build a rapport is, is being there for folks and supporting them and congratulating them and offering assistance. And that takes a lot of time and energy. And so one transition that I felt in, found in building trust was when I started to be just as excited about a new opportunity, even if it wasn't coming to me or wasn't coming to my organization, when I was just so excited it was coming to our community, that was a big uh, a big leap forward because I had built trust with folks and was like, they're going to be amazing. Instead of being defensive saying, why didn't that come to me? Why don't I get to work on that? How come our organization isn't leading that? To build trust, you start to get excited about others doing great things and how can you support them and how can you help them? And sometimes it's showing up and supporting and not expecting anything in return. So that's that's a big thing. That means attending the events. That means, you know, making connections without expecting anything back and using some of your capital, social capital when you can to help others move forward. That's a big part of it. You're giving without expecting to get back. Rick Torosi raised another important point with regard to showing up that I hadn't previously considered. Being a trustworthy ecosystem builder means showing up where people are already doing things. As impatient problem solvers and gap fillers, we are quick to roll up our sleeves and create what we believe is needed. The smarter approach is, as always, a little patience. See what others are already doing, and instead of building new tables, sit at the tables that are already set up and see what you can gather from them. You simply can't expect people to show up for your thing or trust you if you don't do the same thing for them first, without expecting anything in return. Number six, this is the work. All of this trust building takes a lot of work and even more time. Time we don't always feel like we have when we're trying to show what we can do, when we're reporting on grants with strict timelines, or when things simply seem so dire that we feel like we need to jump into action yesterday. But as Faye and Margot and Cecilia and Jess and Rick and Julie and Todd shared, Sitting down, listening actively, having hard conversations and building trust. That is the work. As effective ecosystem builders, we invest deeply in all these intangible activities before the first plan ever gets hatched. 
before the first collaborators on board, and before the first strategic doing initiative kicks off. This is the groundwork of nurturing and advancing our communities through ecosystem building. And it can be hard. I believe that this is almost impossible to get right when you're just starting out. As I'm convening the entrepreneurial ecosystem in the Shenandoah Valley, I am constantly reminding myself that I simply haven't built up enough social capital in the four months I've lived here. I have to actively remember that slow and steady wins the race of relationship building. And I've taken many pieces of advice from this season to guide my work here in the Valley. I hope you'll do the same. And here we are, friends. Another chapter of our playbook on ecosystem building is complete. I hope you enjoyed season four as we talked about the currency of social capital, the hairy business of managing conflict, and the magic that can happen if we manage to build trust. If you want to digest this season recap in essay form, head over to socialventurers.com, where you can also find an overview of all the resources we gathered throughout this season. If you sign up for Impact Curator, you'll get all this goodness delivered straight to your inbox every two weeks, along with a heartfelt reminder that what you do matters. You'll find links to all this and more in the show notes. I will be back with an update from the field next week, and I'm so excited to share a very special bonus episode with you in early 2023 before we launch Season 5 called The Quitters. Thanks for everything that you do, Annika. I pay my respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live, the Monacan, Shawanda Setula, and Monahawk people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water, and community. I pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. This episode was produced by Yellow House Media. Yellow House Media.